How are we doing this morning? Good. I want to uh, thank Dennis and thank all of you for uh, for coming today. And uh, I'm privileged, humbled, and honored to be uh, talking in front of you today. And um, what I'm going to be sharing here, I don't want you to think it's going to be some kind of theoretical from, you know, abstract kind of thing. But this is something that, you know, I think um, relates to all of us today. But um, Ashley and I started coming to Oasis back in January of 2009. And uh, we were going to another church at the time, and we kind of felt God tugging at both of our hearts to kind of just, you know, move on, move out, and just to go uh, somewhere else. And we prayed about it. We went to a few churches, and then we came here, and, you know, we felt like we really lined up with the vision, and the, you know, the foresight of Oasis, and we really just, we really wanted to be a part of it. And um, it's, it's been awesome for both of us, because we've been able to make a lot of friends and to meet so many of you. And um, I like to, we, we love to, uh, you know, talk to people and just get to know people, but in addition to talking, I also like to observe. And um, I consider myself to be a very observant person at times, although, you know, my wife doesn't think I'm that observant when it comes to looking for something in the fridge. But, you know, I, I like to observe myself. And I, I got to confess, there, there is a person in this room that I've been observing uh, from time to time. Go, pers- this person goes to the church. I'll keep it anonymous, okay? Um, I'm, I don't want you to think I'm a mad scientist with subjects or anything, but I, I've been observing people. Um, but one person in particular, and I just make mental notes of what I see. When I see this person, it seems as if he or she is usually kind of unhappy, no matter what the circumstances are. I almost bet if this person was given a $10,000 check, he or she would gratefully accept it and use it well. But give it a few days, maybe even a week or two, wouldn't be like it never even happened. When I see this person engaged in conversation, it always seems like he or she is always unhappy with something and is always longing for something more. It often seems as if he or she spends a great deal of time seeking after his or her own pleasure, yet never seems satisfied even if this person eventually gets what he or she wants. This person has a constant longing, a yearning, an insatiable kind of appetite, never satisfied, never fulfilled. I mean, this person lives in the state of Connecticut, right? We're one of the richest states and the richest country in the world. This person is well-fed, has a warm bed to sleep on at night, and has many other luxuries most people in this world would most likely give an arm or a leg for. Most people in this world are daily suffering with the blindness of selfishness, greed, pride, lust, and unforgiveness, and hatred, and other things like that. How is it that this person can be so blessed see so many miracles, and yet still hunger for something other than than God himself. I mean, after all, this person does call himself or herself a Christ follower, right? So it only stands to reason that if he or she was truly aware of all these things, this person may be humbled, honored, maybe privileged, maybe willing to do whatever it was that God wanted him or her to do, right? But that rarely happens. This person, whenever I see him or her, always, always seems discontent with everything. Always discontent. And I can't figure out why. Who is this person? Welcome to my world. This person is me. This person that I'm talking about is me. Now, I don't know how many deep sighs of relief, you know, came about all you out there. It's like, oh, shoot, he's been watching me. But uh, talking today about contentment, all right? This is something that we, on our journey with Christ, we struggle with day after day after day. I mean, we know, we, we, we know we're supposed to be <clears throat> content, but yet we, we don't act like that. 
We're always constantly yearning for something more. I mean, after all, we've heard it again and again. Those of us that have been Christians for years and years and years, right? Christ paid the price. He, you know, one shot deal. That was it, right? But we're looking for something more. I remember Dennis preaching a few weeks ago that, you know, we live in this supplement happy uh, society, right? Where we always want to supplement something with something else, right? Your diet is incomplete, so you need to supplement it with vitamins and minerals and stuff like that. But the, the message of Christ, the gospel, what Jesus did for us in paying the price so that we can now come to God, free gift, that does not need to be supplemented. Yet we still, we're, we don't buy that. We're still, we're still, we're not content. We long for something more when we have the greatest gift already, Christ himself. We have it. A man became envious of his friends because they had larger and more luxurious homes. So he decided to list his house with a real estate firm planning to sell it and to purchase a more impressive home. Shortly afterward, as he was reading the classified section of the newspaper one day, he saw an ad for a house that seemed just right. He promptly called the realtor and said, hey, a house described in today's paper, it's exactly what I'm looking for. Can I please see it as soon as possible? And so the realtor started, proceeded to ask the man some questions. And about, you know, five minutes later, the realtor said to him, but sir, that's, that's your house you're describing. Go figure, right? I mean, the man had everything he already needed, but he just didn't realize that. He was so blind to it. He was not, he was not attuned to that. And I think so many of us today, we, we wrestle and we struggle with that issue of contentment. God has given us so much. In fact, this thing working here, there's a scripture in the Bible, and I'm sure many of you could quote it, right? Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. It says, My God will supply or meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. How many of you here have needs this morning? I mean, don't we all? We're human beings, right? I remember in elementary school, the, one of the social studies class, they always taught us that human beings have three basic needs. What are they? Food, shelter, and clothing, right? I mean, we all have food, right? Is, have you all had a meal in at least the last day or two? Yes? Okay. Do we have clothing? Yes, I mean, I didn't see anybody running around the Grange naked this morning, right? No, we're we're fully clothed. And shelter. I mean, do we have shelter right now? Come on, it's the Grange. We got black mold growing on the basement, right? I mean, okay, I'm not content right now, but okay, we have have shelter, right? So it seems like when God makes a promise, he keeps it. I know the Apostle Paul is talking here. And I don't want you to think I'm taking the Scripture totally out of context because we're going to go back to Philippians later on and take a closer look at Paul's life. But Paul says, my God will supply all of your needs. And I looked up the word supply in the Strong's Court. It's in the Greek. I'm going to teach you a little Greek this morning. I'll give you a quiz later. All right? The Greek word is pleireo. Let me hear you say it. Pleireo. Pleireo. Okay? And this word supply is not the supply that's, that I'm talking about when, say, you and your buddy go to McDonald's and you realize there's no money in your wallet and then you ask him to spot you a couple bucks so you can get something to eat. That's not what this word supply is talking about. Okay, this word supply is also not talking about when senior citizens or people with disabilities get a social security check from the government, right? You often find out, is that enough to meet our needs? Not really, right? I mean, kind of basic or maybe even, um, you know, unemployment. Those people between jobs having a hard time finding a job. Unemployment check. Yeah, you're grateful to get it. But you know what? Oftentimes we find that that's not enough. That's not what that supply is talking about. Uncle Sam's pockets are limited. But God's supply is unlimited. Listen to what the definition of supply here says. It says to render full, to complete, to fill to the top so that nothing shall be wanting to full measure. 
filled to the brim, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? And I thought this was interesting. It says also to make, this word supply here, Paul mentions, is the Greek word pleireo. It also means to make complete in every particular. That means physically, spiritually, and emotionally. God will supply all your needs, not just the physical needs, but, you know, spirit, I mean, he's met our you know, spiritual and emotional needs. We're going to heaven one day. We believe in him. It also means, and I thought this was uh, interesting too. I never realized this. This word supply also means to carry through to the end. Not just a one-shot deal. Here you go. I'll help you out now, but you're on your own after. No, he'll carry you through to the end to accomplish, to carry out some undertaking. And as I saw that, I was reminded of a scripture in Psalms, and he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Right? That's what Paul's, this is the supply that Paul's talking about here. The unlimited supply of God. I mean, if, if, he heard, if God promised this here, why are we so eh, discontent? We, we still are when God's met our needs. I mean, granted, we see a lot of, you know, we see a lot of cruelty in the world. We see things that aren't fair. I mean, I don't know about you, but I tend to be a big wisher sometimes. Any of you ever wish things were different in life? Maybe you wish you didn't have something you do have, or maybe you wish you... Um, had something that you didn't have, like that man we talked about before with the real estate firm, right? But I know that I often wish that things in my life are different. I mean, and, and this message really, you know, comes you know from the bottom of my heart here because contentment is something I've struggled with all my life, literally. I mean, I've I'm 31 years old now, but I've had uh, juvenile diabetes since I was six, and I'll still admit it now. I hate the disease. I mean, I'm grateful to God that I have insulin to take care of my blood sugar levels. When my blood sugar levels start soaring through the roof, the insulin will bring it back down. But every time I eat, I have to think about how much insulin to, you know, inject into myself. Because if I give myself too much insulin, then my blood sugar levels go low and I could pass out unconscious. But if I give myself too little insulin, then my blood sugars go through the roof. And some days I feel like in a, like just a roller coaster. I just feel like crap and it's just, duh. And I hate it. And I argue with God. I'm like, why did you let me have this? Why did you let my parents give me the erythromycin when I had chicken pox when I was six years old? Because I was allergic to it. And my body killed its pancreas cells as a result, as an allergic reaction. But could God have stopped it? Yes. Why didn't he? I mean, I feel like that's a legit question I have for God. And I bet you every one of you here can have, have a question or two you want to ask God. Hello, what were you thinking, right? Why? And we forget about this, but yet we just focus on these things that we don't like. I wish things were different. You ever wish that other people were different? And I bet you other people probably wish that you were different too, right? And we always, we live in this wishing well world. And it's funny, but it's also sad at the same time. So what would happen? Put yourself, I mean, what if you just went to sleep one night and all of a sudden you saw a God, poof, you know, kind of like a, you know, a genie or something like that. And he says, I'll tell you what, I will grant you one wish. God says, I'll grant, think about this seriously. I'll grant you one wish. Whatever you ask for, I promise I will give it to you. But the only wish you can't wish for is more wishes. Right? What would you wish for? Think about it. What would you wish for? Oh, ye who are discontent, right? What would you wish for? Well, there is a person in the Bible to whom this story applies. Anybody know who he was? God appeared to somebody, King Solomon, right? And uh, I'm going to paraphrase, paraphrase the story here. It's found in Second Chronicles chapter 1. But basically, Solomon was David's son, right? You know, David, you know, he had an affair with Bathsheba. And, you know, it wasn't supposed to happen, but it happened anyway. And Solomon was born. And, you know, the Bible's promised that Solomon was supposed to get the kingdom, all right? And so 
Solomon's there, he's ruling, he's reigning, and, you know, he's trying, he's doing his best and his hardest to get the kingship all established. And you read it, Solomon was a pretty good king at the very beginning. He, uh, he found favor with God and also with the people. He was a pretty popular king. But God appeared to him in a dream one night. He says, Solomon, you ask me for anything. I promise I'll give it to you. And Solomon, you know, he apparently asked for the right thing. What did he ask for? We know the story. He asked for what? Wisdom to govern this great people of yours, God, because I can't do it on my own. And, and so God says, hey, that was a, that was a, that was a great answer. Because you, you put the people in, in front of yourself, you know, you care more about them. Not only am I going to give you the wisdom you want, I'm going to give you the riches, the fame, the honor, and everything else that goes with it. He gave to Solomon. God gave Solomon everything he wanted. Just how much did God give Solomon? Let's check it out. In the Bible, it says in 2 Chronicles or in 1 Kings, right? This, now, this scripture is in the Bible twice, so I figured it's got to be true, right? It's in both books. Each year, Solomon received about 25 tons of gold. Now, to me, that sounds like a lot, right? But this is often one of those scriptures, I think, we as we Christians, we kind of like to just read it. Yeah, I read, I read the Bible, check, I glossed over it, right? It's kind of like one of those, the book of Numbers, right? How, any of you try those Bible reading plans in a year, right? And then you realize, you know what? Oh, shoot, I didn't, I, for, I didn't read it today, but I'll go to tomorrow. But then you realize, oh, wait, today's reading. That was just a bunch of names and gene, genealogies and stuff. So yeah, we, I don't need to read those chapters. Let's just go. I want to go to the stories, right? How many of you know what I'm talking about? You've done, you know you've done that, right? But every year, Solomon got 25 tons of gold. So I thought, what would that be like according to today's standards? All right? I'm a high school math teacher, so I couldn't leave this out of the... I'm sorry. I promise I won't call on anybody, all right? But, all right. I went on gold.com this past Monday, and uh, the price of gold changes every day. But according to gold.com, the, pri- the average price of gold was $1,342 every ounce. That's a lot. There's 16 ounces in one pound. How many pounds in a ton? I, oh, I know I shouldn't ask questions. 2,000 pounds in one ton, right? So let's do the math and multiply. Every year, Solomon received 25 tons of gold. That makes Solomon's, every year, Solomon was $1,073,600,000 richer. Talking about God keeping his promises. That's insane. Let's, let's, break this, let's break this number up. He was a billionaire every year. He got a billion, 73 million more. All right? Solomon gained that much every year. You divide that number by 365. Solomon was two, about $3 million richer every day. Imagine waking up and then three years, $3 million richer every single day. Seriously. By the hour, he's 100, he makes $122,500 an hour. All right? That's $2,042 every minute. You know what, Ashley? Solomon could have paid off our 30-year mortgage in like two hours. That's amazing. Uh, I wish he was like... Every second of his life, Solomon was $34.04 richer. Every second. For just existing, he was that much richer. So when God promised to give him the wealth, I guess he kind of meant it, right? He, he kept it there. So that's... so. Uh, and by the way, this isn't all of it. I mean, the scriptures also say... Solomon ruled in Jerusalem for over 40 years, the scripture says. So let's do a little bit more math. Take that, take that uh, 1,073,000,000, multiply it by 40. Over his entire lifetime, Solomon accumulated about $43 billion. Okay? Now, Bill Gates um, and like Warren Buffett, they're kind of worth around you know, $50 billion. I'm trying to think, well, there's got to be something else. I always thought Solomon was the richest dude that ever lived, right? But if you look at it again, all right, 
Chronicles goes back and says, by the way, this $43 billion he accumulated in his lifetime didn't include the additional revenue he got from all the merchants and traders. All the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land also brought their gold and silver to Solomon like he really needed it, right? Go figure. So King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king in the earth, the Bible says. But there was still a problem. Despite all this, Solomon, we find, was still not content with life. Anybody know why? Say it again. Yeah. He was a womanizer. That was his downfall. I don't understand this. Solomon got all this wealth. God gave him the wisdom he needed to rule well. I mean, we see one of the stories of his wisdom with the baby, right? The two moms, you know, one rolled on. You know the story. But yet, he blew it. King Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. That was his first wife, right? Should have been his only wife. He married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and all from among the Hittites. I mean, he just, he was all over the place. He was a big womanizer. The Lord clearly instructed his people not to intermarry with those nations because the women they married would lead them to worship their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Man, he made Hugh Hefner look like a saint, right? And sure enough, they led his heart away from the Lord. I mean, 700 wives. I mean, how, how do you manage all that? that that's just it's, it's unthinkable. <laughs> I'm not saying that in a bad, just, that's unthinkable. Like, you, you read the story, read the story of Jacob in, in Genesis, right? I mean, when, he had Leah and he had, he had Rachel, right? When his uncle Laban deceived them. And so, because Rachel's, Rachel's getting all desperate because for a woman not to have a child back then in those days, that was, that was, that was just unthinkable. You had to have a child. And so she gave, she gave Jacob, you know, her maidservant and then Leah did the same thing. And so Jacob, you know, had a relationship with four women and we see all the conflict and turmoil that went on. You know, right there. Never mind. What about Abraham? You know, with, you know, Sarai and, you know, Hagar and stuff. But man, 700 wives and 300 concubines, that's just unthinkable. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship their gods instead of trusting in only the Lord as God, as his father David did. And basically, the scriptures say all more bad things that he did. He started worshiping false gods, bad boy. He refused to follow the Lord completely, as David, his dad, did. And he built, he used his wealth, the wealth that God gave him, he used to build shrines to these other false gods, probably made out of gold. I'm guessing, right? So, the Lord was very angry with Solomon, for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice. He appeared to him twice. We know once about asking, I'll give you the wisdom you want, but God also appeared to Solomon a second time, right after the dedication of the temple. He appeared to him in a dream again. And he says, you know, you know what, you follow me faithfully, I'll, I'll stick with you right to the very end. And, that was, and God would have kept that promise, but you know what? I mean, he still did. God never broke it, but Solomon blew it. He failed the contentment test. And I often wonder to myself, you know, if King Solomon, who had all the wisdom, all the riches that the world could offer, and anything a man could ever want, he blew the test of contentment. He failed it miserably. And think of the ancient Israelites, right? Wandering the desert for 40 years, Right, A journey that should have taken 11 and a half days took 40 years. Why? Because they were what? Discontent by crabbing and complaining, right? It's, 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 not, it's, not a good rest. it's not a good thing to have in our lives. But if the Israelites, man, come on, they saw the pillar of fire at night, they saw the pillar of cloud by day, and Solomon, he sees God twice, and he gets all these riches, and I wonder to myself, these people like see God more in the physical sense than in like the, you know what I mean? We, we look, you know, the people like, come on, if you, know, you really believe in God, like, you know, like Elijah making the bulls on fire with the water. Like, you know, 
we don't see this stuff like in, a, in modern day 2011, but these people saw more of the physical manifestation of God than we do today. And if they saw God more physically and they blew the contentment test, how much more prone are we to fail miserably? And I know I do every day. I feel like I do every day. And that's scary. How much more vulnerable are we? Very vulnerable. All right? And, you know, honestly, you know, when Dennis is talking about before, the world is looking to us for an answer. Right? We live in a broken and hurting world. And this hurting world looks to us. We have Christ, right? Who completes us. As Paul says, he supply all our needs liberally. But, you know what? If the world sees us, Christ followers, as just being discontent, what would make them want to, like, know Christ in the personal way. If we can't even get it together, you know, why would they want to come to know Christ? Now, I want to contrast Solomon's life with the life of another person in the Bible, and that is the Apostle Paul. And just from looking at the Scripture, I think that Paul had it somewhat different than Solomon did. All right? 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says this. Paul's talking. He says, I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was stoned once. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent the night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, bandits, from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. So I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Does this kind of sound a little different than Solomon's extravagant? Just a little bit, right? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, just a wee bit. All right, so if you didn't get it all, there's, there it is right there. This is a summary of all the stuff right there. Now, Paul goes through this. There's all the crap that he's gone through in his life. And if you ever experienced at least some of this, most of us probably not, I don't think. But Paul had it figured out. Ironic, isn't it? Some man who had anything someone could ever want blew the test of contentment, and someone who has all this gets it. And I can't figure that out. But let's see what Paul has to say. I want to go back to Philippians uh, chapter 4. He says to the Philippian church, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. What? 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 What are you smoking? I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Whatever the circumstances, he's talking about those circumstances. Harder prison, flog, beat with rods, stone on the move, bandits, thieves, labored, toiled, sleepless nights, hungry, thirsty, cold, and naked. Yet he's learned to be content with all of that. It's, it's amazing. How does he do it? Let's read on. And actually, Paul knew what he was talking about because did a little study here. The, this, the, the book of 2 Corinthians, where Paul, mentions all, oops, where Paul mentions all this, was written about 55 AD. But Philippians, which is, Philippians is actually known as Paul's joy letter. He was written from when Paul was in prison, awaiting trial to go to Caesar in Rome. But Paul wrote Philippians probably about six years later than he did 2 Corinthians, where he described this hardship. So when he says, I know what it's like to be, he knows what he's talking about. Okay. But this word, content, I decided to look that up in the Greek too because after all, that's what we're talking about. And i got another word for you. It's called ostarkes. Let me hear you say, ostarkes. Dennis is going to quiz you next week. Ostarkes. 
This word content means sufficient for oneself, strong enough or possessing enough to, know, to need no aid or support. No aid or support? I would think I would need some aid or support if I had to go through that. Wouldn't you think? But interesting, the second part of the definition was what really smacked me just right across the face and just blew me away. Independent of external circumstances. This word content literally means you're independent of external circumstances. Going back to the Greek word. Being satisfied with one's means even through the slenderest. You see, Paul was a man who learned to enjoy the scenery along the detours. And we often fail to do that. And we get, so, we get so fixed on what's wrong in our lives and what we wish, we wish, we wish was different, but yet we fail to realize that we have the greatest gift already, but yet we still don't see it so many times. Philip Farum tells a story of a rich industrialist who was disturbed to find the fisherman sitting lazily beside his boat, right on the shoreline, just sitting there. Why aren't you out there fishing? He asked. Because I caught enough fish for today, said the fisherman. Well, why don't you catch more fish than you need? The rich man asked. What would I do with them? The fisherman replied. Well, for one, you could earn more money, came the impatient reply. And you could buy a better boat instead of this thing, so you can go deeper and you can catch more fish. You could purchase nylon nets and then catch even more fish and make more and more money. Soon you'd have a fleet of boats and you could be rich just like me. The fisherman asked, then what would I do? Well, you could sit down and enjoy life, said the industrialist. What do you think I'm doing right now? The fisherman replied as he looked placidly back out to sea. Living in the beauty of the moment, there's something so beautiful about that that I believe in my heart that God designed for each one of us Christ followers to really do, to live in the beauty of the moment, to enjoy the beauty of the moment, to see what he is doing and what he could be doing in our lives in the beauty of the moment. How many times do our spirits get dulled uh, to his our senses get dulled to the leading of His Holy Spirit because we have a little hangnail, right? We have a little hangnail. We're so focused on ourselves, yet the person who has no foot, we walk right by and don't even give it a second thought. People who are discontent are truly not living. Now, and this is a, is, and I, I, this is a hard pill to swallow. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's something that it's hard to hear. I understand. But, you know, Paul said, you know, he discovered the secret to contentment. So I'm thinking, what is that secret? I want to know it. And I'm sure you do too. So, um, uh, yeah. Oops, I didn't realize I had that in there. Yeah, independent of external circumstances. That's what the word content really means. So I, I, re- I rewound a little bit, just a little bit earlier in this chapter. It's funny. Philippians is called... Paul's joy letter, but he's writing this when he's behind bars. Paul is demonstrating more joy and showing more joy in prison than all the people, so many people in Macedonia just throughout, but yet they're not even in prison. They're miserable. But yet he's in jail and he's having the time of his life because it's all up here. Let's check it out in Philippians 4, 6. Don't, and you've heard this before and you know we've often slapped this on other Christians. Well, the Bible says don't worry about anything. It said pray about everything. Well, Take it literally to heart. Sometimes I truly believe that, you know, quality is better than quantity. And whenever you read the Bible, you know, I think we're, we're, we, so, we focus so much on quantity. Like, oh, I read four chapters today. And someone else read two chapters. If we feel like we're more spiritual than they are, right? 
But really, it's like sometimes just like to take a chapter of the Bible, maybe even a few verses, like when Dennis does, just, just like regurg- digest, digest, regurgitate, and just truly chew it and chew it and just get to know, just deeper, the, just deep, know the Scripture more deeply. But Philippians 4, 6 here says, to tell God what you need and to thank Him for all He's done. Then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. And that peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Your third and final Greek word this morning is the Greek word for peace, which is pronounced irene. Let me hear it. Irene. And that peace, there's a lot of definitions, you know, the sense of, you know, just being at peace, not no fights, no nothing. That's you know, one level, but there's a deeper level of that word. In the Strong's Concordance, that word irene, I found it here, I kid you not, word for word, this is what it said. It said the rest, the sense of rest and contentment, consequent thereon. Consequent means it's a consequence of, thankful, of thankfulness. This peace, this peace is a consequence of thankfulness. And that word peace right there, if you, that irene in Greek, but the word peace in Hebrew, anybody know? Shalom. It's actually God's shalom. Irene and shalom mean the same word. They mean the same thing. Just that peace, that peace that passes all understanding, that peace that Dennis was talking about, that peace with God that we have, right? To thank God for all he has done. You see, Paul is implying here that contentment is an effect of thankfulness and rather not the cause, right? Well, we, we, we assume here, well, gosh, we're content. Oh, I'm content with things, therefore I'm thankful. Paul is saying, wait a minute, no. If you're thankful, you'll be content. Right? And it makes, and, that, and I think about it that way, it never just occurred to me. It's kind of like, oh yeah, duh, right? It's an effect of thankfulness. You know, and, it's, and the Bible mentions so much about being thankful, right? I mean, and like so many scriptures kind of came to mind here. I didn't want to like, I didn't want to put them all in there, but you know, the Bible says in Matthew 6, if you seek God's first in his kingdom, then all these things shall be added unto you, meaning you'll be content, you shall not want. Well, great, wait, how do I seek God in his kingdom first? I mean, what does it mean to put God first? I mean, we could have sermon after sermon on that, but I mean, I think in our own hearts, we kind of know what that means already. Put him at the forefront of our mind every day. We're living our lives in the light of what God has for us. Not our own agenda, although, and it's like our agenda clashes with God's, and and we have this fighting thing going on, discontent. But, you know, to really get in God's presence and say, God, you know, what would you have me do today? How do I come into his presence? The psalmist David answers that in Psalm 100. How do you come into God's presence? You enter his gates with, oh, that word thanks again, right? Enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. I'm telling you something. If you go enter in heaven's gates with thanksgiving, as soon as you enter heaven's gates, thanksgiving, you enter there, you're going to want to stay there for a while. I mean, how many of you know what I'm talking about? When you just, you come to God and you're like, you know, you just, it's so hard to pray sometimes and you just have so much blood stuff up here and it's like you you feel like you have spiritual ADD sometimes you know what I mean and it's like you just go there and you're just like God I'm just sometimes you just don't know what to say you have nothing but you can always be thankful just go in there and just like you know what even if you go you know kneel by your bed at night and say God just and just have a big thank you session for 10 minutes that's why not just do that why does it have to be Lord please Lord please Lord please doesn't God want us to thank him too I mean the, the scripture says enter his gates with thanksgiving and thankful, thank him for all he has done. Yeah, tell God what you need, right? You could pray, Lord, I, you know, this is going on. It's not like God doesn't know about it because he's God and he's all-knowing. That's like what he does. But 
thank him for all he's done. Thankfulness reads peace, and that peace literally in the Greek means sense of rest and contentment as a consequence. That's what happens. And, you know, in all these scriptures to supplement that exact, that exact thing. In Romans 8, it also says, wouldn't he who didn't spare his own son also give us every, graciously give us everything else? I mean, he's promised, he's promised to supply all our needs. And when God supplies our needs, you know, we, um, we have nothing to worry about. Nothing to, uh, really, why? I mean, don't get me wrong. Sometimes we go through pain. We, sometimes we go through hard things. And you know what? That's okay. It's okay. But to, but to trust and to keep the God, I don't get it. I'm just having a hard time with this. But for some reason, I know you know what you're doing. And it's, it's a hard pill to swallow. But yet, at the same time, it's just something that I believe God wants for each and every one of us. What could we possibly want or need more than our Jesus? Literally. Solomon versus Paul, you know? Man had everything, this guy has nothing, yet the happiest man is here. And how many of us that went to Honduras this summer, right? We're just walking by, these people didn't have squat to their name, but yet they were so much more happier down there than the people up here in America. When I went to Honduras and I came back, I had a hard time psychologically transitioning. I really, really did. Because I go from Honduras, and then like two days later, I had to buy a battery for Ashley's MacBook computer. I go to the Mac store in the West Farms Mall. So if I was going from Honduras to the Mac store, it's like going from 500 years in the past to like 5,000 years in the future. And it's like, and I see this woman in there complaining because her iPhone 4 is, and it's just like, really, you know? And I, I, it's just, it was just hard, hard to, to, to fathom. And just, we have the greatest treasure of all. And I know that, you know, you've probably heard this before about Christianity is so different than all the other religions of the world because Christianity is about God coming down to man and saving man, and all the world religions are about man trying to work. The, you've, you've heard that argument before, right? But I like to add to that and say, you know what? What other God in all of creation would choose to dwell inside his creation? That's even better. I mean, that the Spirit of God lives inside each and every one of you, that it, it, it blows my mind away. And the fact that we have the greatest treasure already, right in our hearts, what else could we possibly want or need more than our, our Jesus? Years ago, Russell Conwell told the story of an ancient Persian, and his name was Ali Hafed. This is a true story, by the way, I kid you not. Ali Hafed owned a very large farm that had orchards, grain fields, and gardens. And he was a wealthy, contented man. One day, a wise man from the east told the farmer about diamonds, all about diamonds, and how wealthy he could be if he owned a diamond mine. Ali Hafed went to bed that night a poor man, poor because he was discontented. Craving a mine of diamonds, he sold his farm to search for the rare stones. He traveled the world over, finally becoming so poor, so broken, and so defeated that he committed suicide. One day, the man who purchased Ali Hafed's farm led his camel into the garden to drink. As his camel put its nose in the brook, the man saw a flash of light from the sands of the stream. He pulled out a stone that reflected all the color hues of the rainbow. The man had discovered what eventually came to be the diamond mine of Golconda, the most magnificent mine in all of India's history. Had Ali Hafed remained at home and dug in his own garden instead of death in a strange land, you would have had acres and acres of diamonds. Ladies and gentlemen, 
just want to challenge you. Don't become an Ali Hafed. When the Savior of the world, God has given us the greatest gift, and he chooses to dwell in us. We have it already. You have something better than the largest diamond mine in all the world. Why are we still discontent? Let's start being thankful and expect that God will do great things in our lives. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you this morning for everything that you've blessed us with, even the simple things that we take for granted every day. Father, we ask that you would uh, help us to be thankful, help our spirits to be more in tune with your spirit, God. Help us not to miss any opportunity along the way. And God, when, uh, when life hands us lemons, God, help us to somehow in your strength make lemonade and to just truly be Christ-focused and Christ-centered. Give us clean hands. Give us thankful hearts, God. We want to be more like you, Jesus. Lord, you choose to live in us. Lord, we are made whole because of you right now. Even though we don't feel it, we live in a fallen world, but you say that we're clean and cleansed and that we are redeemed and we're, we're bought with such a high price. Thank you, Lord, that you who began this great work in us, you're going to be faithful to complete it. And God, we trust in you. Help us never to doubt. Help us to never lose sight of what you've called us to do. And as we go enter this week, as we enter that mission field out there, we ask that you would give us wisdom and uh, go before us and just prepare the way for us, God. Thank you so much for everything that you've done and that you will do in our lives. We ask you this and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Love you guys.